when that lagged effect finally lapses and we feel the full brunt of the rate hikes, the impact on the economy and on the corporate and household credit situation will be so severe that they'll take rates down dramatically. But we'll have to get a lot of pain before that pivot. And the markets don't seem to be anticipating the pain before the pivot. They're just anticipating the pivot. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. There's a lot of disagreement right now about where the markets are headed. Much of Wall Street's hoping the rally from the first half of this year will reignite, and there's a fair amount of technical analysis suggesting it very well may. But more investors are starting to worry about the impact of today's bond yields. Suddenly, talk is everywhere about how high they are, and fear is growing that they may rise still materially higher from here. And of course, fundamental analysts have been warning for quarters now that the lag effect from central banks' historically aggressive rate hikes and balance sheet reduction will be arriving in force soon, sure to drag economic growth and financial asset prices downwards. So what's most likely to happen from here? We're fortunate to be joined by analyst Stephanie Pomboy today. She's CEO of Macro Mavens and at the top of the list of most popular experts with the wealthy on audience. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. I don't know if that's true, but I'll take it. Thank you. Oh, that's that's the most true thing in the intro. Right. I just uh, read. So that one you can take to the bank, Stephanie. Oh my gosh. Um, well, look, thank you for coming back on the program. Um we we were um lucky enough to have you interview uh, Jim Rickards two weeks ago about the whole BRICS new currency thing. Uh very popular uh video. So thanks for doing that. But uh, in the wake of that, everybody said, hey, that was great to sort of see Stephanie interview Jim, but we want to see Stephanie interview. Ugh. So thank you for coming on to do that. I got a lot of questions for you here. I know there's a lot that's been going on that you've had a lot of strong reactions to, and I really want to surface that in this discussion. As we get our way there, can we start with just the general high-level question? I like to kick off my my talks with you with Stephanie, which is, what's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Uh, well, it will come as no great shock to you to learn, Adam, that I am uh, still in the recession camp. I, I haven't caved and decided that we're going to have no landing and that uh, the rally that we've seen so far this year is going to sustain itself through uh, the rest of 2023 and on into the future. Um, I think that this is sort of a uh, classic um, example of sort of natural human behavior where the longer time goes without an incident, the more and more people become convinced that you'll never have an incident mm -hmm. or accident in, in this case. Um, and so each day that goes by uh, where the recession thesis uh, doesn't materialize, people become more and more emboldened. Uh, meanwhile, each day, as you and I have talked about forever, these higher rates uh, are introduced to a whole new swath of people. You know, these higher rates is, you know, I, I love to state the obvious, but rate increases only impact when you actually have to pay them. So mm -hmm. until you have to get a new mortgage or as a corporation, roll your debt or as the federal government, roll your debt, um, you don't experience any pain from the higher interest rates. So these are the long and variable lags that everyone talks about. Um, but just because they haven't 
um, materialized yet doesn't mean they're not going to. And in fact, I think they're going to in a very meaningful way. And we are, you know, you and I can talk about this. We are starting to see plenty of evidence of um, how vulnerable the weakest links in that uh, credit chain are to these higher interest rates. So I, I think that story is very much in front of us. And uh, this market feels like it's, you know, rallying on hope um, and very little of actual fundamentals. All right. Um, we're definitely going to get into the lag effects. Uh, I have joked often on this channel, I'm going to change my name to Adam Laggart, uh, just because I've been beating the drum like you to just keep people aware that they are going to be inevitable here at some point. Um, you, I know, Stephanie, love a good analogy. Probably used this one for you in the past. Um, I think I used to use it in regards to the Fed keeping interest rates artificially low. But I think today you can kind of apply it to the recession um, odds, which is, uh, you know, the further and further people go out on on thin ice, um, as long as the ice hasn't cracked yet, they begin to get more and more confident that it's not going to, right? And they start yes. treating it with the confidence of concrete. Uh, and of course, that oftentimes tends to make people, influence them to make very speculative decisions or, or more risk-seeking decisions, oftentimes right at the wrong time, right? Right right, right before the, the ice cracks. So we'll we'll dig into that as we get into kind of your thoughts for why you think a recession is is likely here. Um if we can though, I, I wanna I wanna ask you about a recent comment you made um as a jumping off point here into the discussion. Um you said that the two biggest issues facing the markets right now are um the efforts that the the Bank of Japan um has made um around adjusting its yield curve control efforts. Um, and then the second was higher oil prices. Uh, mm -hmm. And I believe you said everything else is secondary. Why do those two have primacy right now? Well, let me just um, preface this by saying that obviously, you know, the Fed rate hikes are the preeminent issue. Um, but what's new in the last month um, is this drag from the Bank of Japan's adjustment in its yield curve control and the higher uh, gasoline prices or you know oil prices in general but i was thinking specifically about higher gasoline prices and the impact they're having on consumers um so as relates to the bank of japan you know it's no secret um that japan has been the marginal source of financing for global carry trades not just for the last several months or years but for more than a decade at this point so we have built up this kind of institutional culture around being able to always access cheap financing in yen and then take that free money essentially and speculate in anything you want all over the world whether it's you know uh, Indonesian real estate or junk bonds here in the US or you you know Nvidia or whatever your your uh flavor of the month is um and what the bank of japan is doing right now um is creating so much at a minimum, creating so much uncertainty around the ability to continue to source that cheap financing um, that I think that's going to have a major impact on global liquidity that the markets aren't really acknowledging just yet. Um, and I, I, one of the reasons I felt like that was so important is that I noticed uh, until the last two trading days that the peak in the S&P was the day after the Bank of Japan effectively doubled the uh, ceiling on the JGB yield. 
um, which, you know, in, in this liquidity context is a real aggressive tightening move. Um, so, you know, I'm not a market technician, but it struck me that those two things were uh, more than just coincidental. And, you know, we'll see how this fleshes out because obviously, you know, you need to be a real expert on Japan and monetary policy to be able to um, hold forth on whether or not this is going to be sustainable and right. how they're going to be able to manage uh, what they're trying to accomplish with this yield curve control. Um, but as it stands right now, what they're doing, I think, at a minimum is creating real uncertainty and uncertainty is the enemy of liquidity. Um, so I think that's a factor that people need to pay attention to. Um, and then as relates to gasoline prices, again, you know, just as uh, an impact on consumers, um, here's another one where you can see a really clear relationship. Uh, and the relationship is between gasoline prices and consumer sentiment. And, you know, we saw this um, increase this sort of surge in consumer sentiment and consumer confidence in the month of July as those lower gasoline prices started to, you know, register. And then no sooner did the gasoline prices turn back up than the University of Michigan survey slumps back over. And in fact, I've done a lot of charts overlaying the relationship between gasoline prices and sentiment. And it's a really, I mean, very hard to tell those two lines apart. Um, so I think that's a very important factor as we get into this back to school season and then ultimately into the holiday season, you know, depending on whether the gasoline prices sustain um, these higher levels, um, you know, given what we're seeing in terms of our domestic energy policy. And then recently, you know, as you mentioned, that BRICS conference and, and the um, invitation of Saudi Arabia and Iran and effectively 80% of the oil producing countries into that consortium, um, it's hard for me to see an environment where we're going to get lower oil prices anytime in the near future. All right. Um, so I'm looking forward in a bit to talking to you about kind of, you know, the state of the U.S. consumer uh, and what we should expect from them going forward. Um, I'm going to give a little spoiler alert. I, I don't think you're super optimistic. And obviously, high gas prices uh, just make their situation even more compromised. Um, but uh so if I can sort of summarize what you said, the, the 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 big factor, if we imagine the economy as a balloon, and and let's say a balloon that is struggling to maintain uh, its its uh, level in the atmosphere, the big factor obviously is we got the the Federal Reserve and the other central banks, they're tightening up the the force of gravity through their rate hike campaigns and their quantitative tightening, right? So they're they're increasing the force of gravity that's trying to pull that balloon back down to earth. And it sounds like, you know, the, from your perspective, the Bank of Japan's uh, move and uh, these higher oil gas prices are like placing two additional anvils inside the balloon. <laughs> so the, the Fed's pulling it back to earth and we're making it heavier. So we're making that pull even even more compelling. I, I just want to mention that. Um, sorry, you were nodding as I was saying that. But if, if you disagree, chime in right when I finish here. Um, Luke Roman, I just interviewed him and he also said, hey, there's been he said four destabilizing factors that have recently happened. And the two you mentioned were two of his four. The other two was the Fitch downgrade of the U.S. credit rating. And then the fourth was uh, Janet Yellen announcing that the Treasury is going to borrow another $1.9 in the second half of this year, basically dramatically increasing the supply of Treasuries, which some people fear may push Treasury yields up even higher. 
Um, so curious, uh, <laughs> do, do you think Luke's uh, two other things are all, I mean, those are introducing additional uncertainty, which you said is, is, is sort of, you know, what, what markets do not like to see, what liquidity does not like to see. Absolutely. Well, first off, being in company with Luke is always a wonderful place to be. So <laughs> I'm happy that I got two of his four, at least I get half credit. Um, but uh, no, and I agree on number three, um, to a certain degree, I think, um, actually, let me say, I would agree on the on the Yellen Treasury financing thing as a major one. I think the Fitch downgrade is interesting. I'd love to talk to you uh, in more detail about that, because I think um, ultimately, you know, the reasons why Fitch decided to downgrade right now um, speak more to a uh, situation in the economy that people really missed. Um, you know, there's been a lot of sort of belated focus on the impact of higher interest rates on our deficit financing needs. And that seemed to be the takeaway from the Fitch downgrade was, oh, holy smokes, look what's going to happen to the deficit as we have to roll all this paper at higher interest rates. And how quickly is the deficit going to, you know, geometrically explode? And you see on Twitter now everyone's doing the math and they've got these doomsday charts and whatnot. And I'm not dismissing that as an issue. Um, but I think it's kind of um, interesting, again, as sort of just a, a thought experiment, that there's so much belated concern about our ability to finance our deficits, but there's no similar concern about corporations and households and how they are going to service debts and they don't have the luxury of a printing press right. or the power of taxation. So, you know, and they don't have the borrowing right capacity either. Exactly. They're being cut off from access to the funds. So, you know, uh, I think that is my sort of um, selfish takeaway from it, because I've been really focused, as you mentioned, on the impact of these higher interest rates on corporations in the household sector. And frankly, um, I have maybe people would view it as an intellectually lazy view about the problem of the federal government. And that is, um, I think the problem is going to be solved by the Federal Reserve going back to quantitative easing. Um, you know, I kind of cop out because I feel like all the reasons that I know Luke has so articulately outlined as to why this is completely unsustainable are the reasons why it's just a matter of time before the Fed has to abandon quantitative tightening and go back to re-expanding its balance sheet. Um, I just, you know, again, maybe it's intellectual laziness or maybe it's a sense of looking back at history and policymakers' tolerance for pain um, that informs my view that, you know, they probably aren't going to abide any material hit um, should that materialize uh, without reversing course. And, you know, I uh, related to that, I feel so strongly about that view that I have sort of a contrarian uh, take on what's going to happen in terms of Fed policy where the market is anticipating a pivot in interest rates, I think you will see them pivot on the balance sheet before they cut rates. And I think that this gives them kind of a way of effectively lowering interest rates while maintaining their higher for longer nonsense, um, because it's kind of a cloak and dagger type of, of move. Um, so it, you know, it's all, uh, ultimately going to result in the same thing, which is lower interest rates, but the mechanism by which they do that might disappoint the markets. 
And as okay. relates to that pivot, Adam, I just wanted to go back and say when when we talked about the Bank of Japan and gasoline prices as those two anvils, as you said, added to the balloon of, you know, uh, Fed rate hikes. Um, I think this the Fed rate hikes are sort of being dismissed by the markets because they're so confident that we're going to get a pivot. And that makes the anvils of gasoline and BOJ even more important because we can't anticipate a pivot in those two things. And, you know, the markets are very convinced that whatever impact we have from higher rates from the Fed rate hikes are are going to be quickly dispelled the moment that they start cutting. Um, but those other two factors are a little bit more recalcitrant. Sure. So I'm so glad you went here because this was literally the next question that I had on my sheet was <laughs> your your comment here about saying, look, the Fed is looking like it is going to make good on its hire for longer, mm -hmm. but you could see it switching to quantitative easing, you know, re-expanding its balance sheet while still raising interest rates or at least keeping interest rates really high, um, which I think is a scenario that not too many people have been entertaining, right? As you said, everyone's been super focused on the Fed pivoting by by lowering interest rates. Right. And, and, and it's, it's not it's, to say, Adam, that I don't think they're going to rates. I mean, my scenario is that this hit that when that lagged effect finally lapses and we feel the full brunt of the rate hikes, the impact on the economy and on the corporate and household credit situation will be so severe that they'll take rates down dramatically. But we'll have to get a lot of pain before that pivot and the markets don't seem to be anticipating the pain before the pivot they're just anticipating the pivot so roll up your sleeve steph because we got a lot to dig into here okay right. so first good <laughs> so, so first um uh you and i have talked about kind of the the broken thinking where the markets i mean for almost a year now maybe even a year now right have been looking salivating for the interest rate pivot Right. We just want the Fed to start cutting. And there was talk they'll never get to three percent. Right. Um, and uh, and of course, the Fed has has hiked much more than the market expected. And the market has had to readjust its expectations every time. Now, what's been interesting is that's been happening all this year, too. And even as the market has had to change its expectations, it's still been able to power financial asset prices higher in, in the wake of that, which obviously, you know, doesn't necessarily make total sense. But if you look back at history, we see very clearly that when the Fed is hiking into what very well may be a recession, when it is forced to pivot, right, by the economy starting to struggle, financial asset prices continue to go down for a couple of yeah. quarters, right? So the market still has this expectation that like, oh, well, the Fed's going to pivot rates and then it's going to be happy days all over again immediately, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we have that incongruous line of thinking here. Right. So now you're saying, hey, beyond that market, like the Fed might pivot by cutting interest rates, but it's not going to necessarily have the outcome you want. But the Fed might not actually initially pivot uh, by cutting interest rates. It may go back to uh, stimulating the economy through QE. So let's talk about that for a second. So what I and a number of people that I've interviewed recently on this channel think, and I want to get your opinion on this to see if you think similarly or different, is the reason why so many people have been surprised this year, why we haven't gotten the recession that seemed so imminent at the end of last year, is largely because while the Fed and the banking system are stamping on the monetary and, and, and credit availability breaks, the fiscal side has been still spending really heavily with these you know, sort of wartime deficits that we have right now, 
right? And that that some people posit is what's been pushing the recession out, pre preventing it from from arriving here. Now, if 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 the economy if the economy still continues to to wobble from here, and I think we're potentially seeing more signs that those mm -hmm. lag effects are arriving, and and I just had Danielle on last week, and I talked with her about this, and she said, "Yep, I get it. I just think that the lag effect is going to overpower the fiscal spending side of things eventually." If and when it does, and the Fed then re resorts back to quantitative easing, well, then do we have the issue of potentially still the fiscal side trying to stimulate and now the monetary side stimulating and then reigniting inflation here? Because I know you're very much in the in the dis in the deflation camp. Um, could could we could this make inflation a lot stickier than it otherwise would be? Wow. So um, we're jumping across the crisis back to the other side um, and looking at that. And I, yeah. you know, and, I know as a financer, I'm just trying to think yeah, if we have no, both these sides trying to stimulate. Yeah. I'm inclined to um, be more in Danielle's camp on that because, you know, I'm, I'm uh, history makes an impact on me and uh, I'm very, you know, impressionable in that regard. And I think back to the period of, 2007, 8, and 9. Um, and first off, to your point about how financial assets underperform once the Fed pivots, mm -hmm. it's funny you bring that up because I was looking, you know, I've been deep in spreadsheets on the corporate bankruptcy thing. And I went back and I was looking at that. When did they really start to pick up in that 2007, 8, 9 thing? And they started to pick up big time in September of 2007, which is exactly when the Fed first cut interest rates. Okay. So that's, you started to see the pain right when they started to ease. And it stands to reason. It's the pain that causes the pivot. Right. Um, it's not some kind of immaculate uh, delivery. Well, um, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but, but just as there's a lag effect where the Fed policy is starting to cool yeah. the economy and then things start rolling over, there's a lag effect from when it starts trying to stimulate the economy. You don't Absolutely. see that benefit for a good while, right? Absolutely. And, you know, people are licking their wounds. It takes a long time for people to um, get over the scars that they build up during that decline. And, you know, uh, nothing is more brutal than leverage in reverse. So, uh, you know, when you're, it's one thing to lose money, but to lose money on leverage is a really, really painful experience. And we saw that, you know, with the household sector after the housing bubble bust, I mean, they refused to even borrow on their credit cards for a long, long, long time after um, they were so chastened by that experience. Um, so I think you will have a period, and this is what um, you know will ultimately bring back the phrase "pushing on a string." Remember that phrase? Absolutely. And that's what. Yeah, that's what you're referring to about when the Fed cuts rates, um, and it seems to have no response um, because they're trying to pump money into a system that just doesn't want it. They don't want to borrow. They don't want to uh, expand and, you know, undertake capex and hire people. They want to hunker down and kind of work through the emotional and financial distress of what they just lived through. Um, so we'll, we will definitely go through a period like that. And that will serve as a counterbalance to the inflation pressures that fiscal and monetary policy are trying to exert on the system. Um, now, obviously, in terms of the inflation impulse, the fiscal policy is more meaningful because right. unlike, 
monetary policy where they just kind of scattershot money out there and hope that it lands. Um, fiscal policy can be targeted and, you know, they can, as they did with the CARES Act, send mail, you know, check in the mail to people and your impulse to spend money that's in your hands versus access to credit in the banking system is obviously substantially higher. Um, so I do, you know, it depends on whether, you know, what the situation is in Washington after this recession takes hold. Do we have divided government where the ability to pass that kind of fiscal stimulus again is hamstrung? Um, that's really a, a political discussion and I'm definitely not equipped to uh, hold forth on that other than sort of a man on the street uh, viewpoint. But I do think as you said there, I, you know, my heart is more in the deflation camp because in that experience of 2008-9, you know, people forget we had five and a half percent CPI in July of 08. A year later, it was minus 2.1 percent. So, you know, a, a real hit to uh, the financial markets can have a, a massively disinflationary impact on goods and services in the economy. Okay, and let's let's talk about the deficit for a second because um, it, it is very large, right? Um, uh, it is about the largest in terms of a percent of GDP uh, than we've ever had at a time where unemployment's been this low, which is sort of why I use the term we have a wartime deficit and a peacetime economy here. Yeah. Um, now, there are elements of that deficit that will compromise economic growth going forward, right? So um, one of it is, you, give, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but is the interest service on the national debt is really ballooning under these higher rates right now, right? Um, mm -hmm. Also, parts of that deficit are potentially getting turned off. Um, one of the things Danielle talked about when I was talking with her was the, the wind down of the employee retention credit, um, where the IRS is really beginning to, you know, wake up to the fact that there was a ton of fraud uh, in the earlier pandemic relief, and they're they're really trying to get on top of it this time around. And, and it looks like there's some real efforts now to, to materially uh, curtail the, the amount of spending that's been done to date, which has been substantial. I mean, it's been in the tens of billions uh, per month. Um, and one of the things Danielle talked about is a lot of that is going to the top 20% of households too, which is A, contributing to the, the wealth unaffordability, but also as that gets turned off, those top 20% of households, they do about 40% of consumer yeah. spending. So it's going to be a disproportionate hit likely to consumer spending. That's going to come at the same time that you know 40 plus million student loan borrowers are going to have their loans finally go back into repayment here. And I think the average is something like 300 bucks a month that all yes, of a sudden yeah. is not going to be going into the economy and instead is going to be going to repay student debt. So, you know, there are some pretty big shoes that are going to be dropping here in the very near term that, again, if they're not adding anvils to that balloon, they're putting, you know, cinder blocks and bowling balls and stuff in there. So um, you, you said you think you're sort of or you say you're still in, in camp recession. Talk about, you know, what you see going ahead from these factors. Um, what arc do you see the economy following from here? Is it going to be a slowdown grind for the rest of the year and the worst is going to happen in 2024? Could it happen sooner, later? What are you seeing? Well, I, you know, I guess I am uh, not as convinced that the fiscal stimulus is a major, I mean, it absolutely had been a major uh, driver of growth 
not so sure that it's as impactful now. And what leads me to say that is when you look through the consumer spending numbers, you know, consumer spending is by no means strong. So this idea that the economy is doing great and it's being driven by a greater fiscal stimulus that's offsetting monetary restraint is one I'm a little tentative about. You know, real retail sales have gone nowhere for over a year. That means unit sales have not increased at all. People, the headline nominal retail sales looks good because inflation is up. It's all higher prices. And the point I'm trying to make on that is that people aren't buying more stuff because they want to or because they feel great and they've got all this money to spend. Um, they're buying the same amount of stuff and they're just paying more to do it. Um, and in fact, not only are they paying more to buy the same amount of stuff, but they're drawing down savings and ramping up credit card borrowing at the mm -hmm. same time. So when I look at the consumer, um, I, you know, the two questions I ask when I see a 1% headline nominal retail sales number are, um, well, three questions. Number one, what kind of seasonal adjustment assumption did they use? And it turns out they use some pretty um, simple and nice flattering uh, assumptions there that they didn't use last July. But anyway, I'll put a pin in that one. Um, but I look at um, what are consumers spending on? Is it discretionary stuff or is it non-discretionary mm -hmm. items? How are they financing that consumption? And whether you're talking about retail sales or overall consumer spending, what you see is that it's non-discretionary stuff. It's healthcare, it's you know housing, um, gasoline. Uh, and these are things people are forced to spend on. And again, they're financing this consumption increasingly with savings and with credit card borrowing. Um, so that doesn't strike me as a strong consumer that's being lavished with fiscal stimulus that they just don't know, you know, where to spend it fast enough. Um, so that's sort of my my takeaway on it. And I guess my feeling is that um, you therefore are building this kind of steady erosion of consumer spending. And, you know, you saw, I'm sure, uh, Macy's and Dick's Sporting Goods and, you know, mm -hmm. a lot, there were a lot of warnings about the strength of the consumer in those retail uh, earnings numbers. Um, so I think that's an important uh, factor there. And, you know, in where I come out in terms of how growth has managed to sort of defy all of us, uh, who were anticipating a really severe recession taking hold immediately, um, is that I think this pivot uh, hope or hype um, has not just afflicted Wall Street, but Main Street. And I think, I'm not talking about households because they may not have any idea about where the Fed funds rate is, much less how much the Fed might cut it and when. But in corporate America, you had this post-pandemic labor hoarding tendency. Um, you know, when you look at the decline we've seen in corporate profits, you would normally see like decline in employment. You know, it used to be traditionally that if you overlaid profit growth and employment growth, you couldn't tell the two lines apart. Yeah. And that's not been the case this cycle. And I think the reason, and it's fairly, you know, widely accepted that the reason is that 
companies had such a hard time getting people back to work after the pandemic that once they got them, even as profits slowed, they said, you know, we're not going to rush to let go of these people. It took so long to get them. Let's hang on and see how bad this is and how long it lasts. And they're being told by everyone on Wall Street that it's not going to last very long if we have a landing at all. And the Fed's going to pivot. And if you have a recession, it's going to be short and shallow. So only a fool would let go of these workers that they worked so hard to get. Um, so my sense is that we could go from a period of aggressive labor hoarding to aggressive labor shedding right. when it becomes clear that, you know, in fact, we are going to have a hard landing and the Fed is holding to hire for longer. And there is going to be a lot more pain than the markets are currently anticipating. And let, let me just add a, a thought to that, which is um, back to my balloon analogy. I'm, I'm going to beat that thing to a bloody pulp before the end of this discussion. <laughs> um, so when, uh, when the balloon really starts falling fast, right? And the, the balloon conductor is fearful of, oh my God, we're going to have a really hard landing. What does he do? He just starts jettisoning anything he can from the balloon, right? right? That has mass, right? And I think that's a good analogy for corporations, right? Which is once once the things really hit the fan and the corporations are fighting for survival, you know, that's when they say, okay, look, I don't have the luxury of hoarding employees anymore. If, right. if someone's not immediately essential to tomorrow, they're out, right? And uh, I also think one psychological trigger that could happen there too is well, look, why was it so hard to hire people back during the pandemic? You know, two reasons. One, people legitimately had some fear for their safety still at some point, right? We didn't know if getting back into the office was going to expose you if you felt you were at risk. But I think more importantly, we were sending people tons of checks. I mean, we were right. just sending them a ton of stimulus. So we had the great resignation, right? You know, quits went through the roof and everybody either retired early if they're when, when their stock portfolios recovered, if they were older, or they just gave the boss the, you know, one finger salute and uh, said, hey, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have to, I don't have to work right now, right? Um, a different environment now, right? And, and and certainly likely to be even more different the more we fall, begin to really fall into recession here, right? So I think at some point you would think that hirers might say, you know what, like it may actually not be as hard to hire people back in the future okay. once I let them go. Because when I think about it, it was a totally unique situation during the pandemic. We don't have those conditions again. In fact, there's probably going to be a lot of qualified people banging on my door to get rehired, right, if, if layoffs really continue to go through the roof here. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think you're seeing signs of that already. I mean, I think uh, you look at Goldman Sachs and Amazon, for example, saying that's it, you know, no more work from home. If you want a job at our company, you're going to be coming to the office. Um, so I think there are signs where employers are saying, you know, we don't need, well, there are plenty of uh, good candidates out there. We don't need to uh, bend over backwards to cater to these people who just, you know, want to continue to dwell in their pandemic, uh, you know, cozy cocoons. Um, so that's one shift. Uh, you know, the other thing that happened, you're so correct that we were basically paying people to stay at home during the pandemic. And uh, that was evident in the labor force and the great resignation. The other thing that happened was obviously um, you had a concomitant bubble blown in the markets. Right. So you had this whole swath of people who became day traders and whatnot. Um, and, you know, I think you and I talked about this, this is probably two years ago now, um, I was doing these charts overlaying the Wilshire 5000 with the jolts 
quit rate. Right. And, you know, the minute the stock market <laughs> started to turn down, people stopped quitting their jobs and vice versa. So the more the stock market went up, the more people just said, I'm out, you know. So um, there's a, a wealth effect uh, side to this as well. Um, so my point there is that if we do have the markets finally exceeds the reality that we, we are going to have a hard landing and that profit growth isn't going to be double digits next year, but might in fact be double digits on the downside, um, you could see, you know, uh, financial deflation that gets a lot of people coming back into the workforce just in time for companies to say, you know what, we don't need anyone anymore. We're going to start uh, shedding workers. So I, I think we could go from labor tightness to labor slack in, in a pretty good hurry. Yeah. And you, you've talked about how, um, uh, I think I think it's CPI, not GDP growth, um, but it, it's one of the two, how, how quickly in going into the 08 recession that went from very robustly positive to just yeah. you know stomach churningly sickening negative in in a, yes. in a very short period of time and that's just i mean history shows us it can happen but but people kind of forget about that right and so they don't think it can happen that quickly um i've said many times i think even in conversation with you that you know as as the trillions of stimulus got pushed out during the pandemic and it 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 you know just shoved the prices of all financial assets to to gargantuan new highs we had a lot of people eject uh, to retire early right where they looked yeah. at their their retirement balances and case, said, whoa yeah. I, I got here years before i expected to all right you know see a boss take this job and shove it right i'm retiring and i don't have the data in front of me but i did see more in the earlier part of this year you know coming out of the the gruesomeness of, of 2022 that of the people that had retired early uh i think like i want to say like 40 percent or something like that were already finding their way back into the workforce yeah. because their their portfolios had been injured and, and the cost of living was higher than they had initially forecasted right with a huge surge in the cost of living and they were finding themselves having to come back into the workforce and so anyways i've I, I made this prediction out oh, two plus years ago that the great resignation was was probably going to metastasize into the great yeah. please may I have my job back sir movement and i think we're beginning to see that but I, I believe and don't let me put words in your mouth but i believe if we have the type of recession that i i think you think is coming that's probably going to be true on steroids correct yeah absolutely first let me say she's not allowed on the furniture at home so that's why she's up on the furniture <laughs> look it's wilhelmina's world we're just living in it <laughs> I tell you, she just discreetly jumped up on the sofa there as if no one was going to notice. Um, <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. I think that um, it, we would have a, uh, you know, go to real labor slack, as you say, on steroids. And I think another factor um, that kind of dovetails back to another bee in my bonnet is the role that the corporate bankruptcies are going to play in this. You know, we've seen a lot of headlines about how we have the largest number of corporate bankruptcy filings so far this year since the global financial crisis. Um, and yet no one seems to think that that's an issue of any right. kind. Um, but absent from any discussion about the corporate bankruptcies is how many people are being losing their jobs. I went through just this morning, just picked out the top 
10 companies that have filed for bankruptcy this year, the, the names that are familiar to you and me, like Bed Bath & Beyond and Tuesday Morning, Yellow that just went uh, bankrupt a couple of weeks ago. This morning, they're talking about Rite Aid filing for bankruptcy. When I add up those 10, the top 10 companies there, they employ 200,000 people. So, and this is just 10 companies out of nearly 200 companies that have filed for bankruptcy so far this year. Um, so imagine what the total hit to employment is for that. Um, we get a window into it. I saw an estimate of how many people are employed at zombie corporations, which are all the companies that, you know, basically uh, couldn't service their debt out of existing operation before the Fed started raising rates. So forget about their ability to survive today. Those companies employ 2.2 million people. Um, so this corporate bankruptcy cycle is going to have a huge impact on the employment picture. Um, and that in turn, obviously, will impact consumer spending. And so we'll have, you know, several uh, circles of hell, <laughs> if I may use that analogy, uh, to get through here. Um, and obviously, as the consumer spends less, then companies that are viable enterprises will see their profits wither. And then, you know, they'll hire fewer people and you get into this kind of vicious, you get that vicious cycle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So uh, I was going to dredge up an old analogy of yours about um, where are we on the bodies floating to the surface count? Sounds like you're beginning to, to starting to identify some, right? Yellow over here, right it over here, right? Um, so I assume we're still probably though in early innings from your expectations here. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and I think, um, you know, as it is early innings, we're seeing the worst again since uh, the global financial crisis, but they're accelerating. So here in August, we have seen many more bankruptcies, 50% more than we saw last month. Um, and then, you know, my window into sort of the leading indicator of the, uh, defaults in the in the bankruptcy cycle are ratings downgrades. Um, and the pace of ratings downgrades has also accelerated. You know, a year ago, before the Fed started raising rates, um, we had upgrades in the corporate credit market outpacing downgrades two to one. This quarter, downgrades are outpacing upgrades two to one. Mm. So we completely flipped the script. Um, and again, you know, you have a lot of um, debt that has yet to roll um, you know, there are a lot of stories on Bloomberg about uh, how this uh, risk on moment that we've had here has allowed a lot of companies to get in there. A lot of junk rated borrowers have come in and, and uh, seize this as an opportunity to roll their paper. Um, it, it's interesting that you've got this kind of dichotomy where it's junk borrowers who are taking advantage of this opening in the market right now. And investment grade borrowers are standing back. You know, they're like, hmm, I don't know if I want to <laughs> jump in here. Um, and what's interesting about that is that the chunk borrowers are locking in rates that are double what they were paying prior. You know, before the Fed started raising rates, chunk yields were 4%. Um, they're 865 today. Um, you know, investment grade borrowers have seen also a doubling of their uh, borrowing costs, but they're standing aside. Um, hey, and the real quick, can that, I just interrupt you for one sec on that? So uh, high yield yields much higher now than they were. 
Are the spreads blowing out yet or not? No, no. And so that's in the in the junk space. Um, the spreads have not really blown out. They did initially when the Fed started raising rates. And then, you know, I, that whole risk on moment. I mean, basically, junk spreads and the S&P you know, kind of moved together. Um, so you had a little repricing of risk. And then, you know, now we're back in this risk on mode. Um, and so the spreads really haven't picked up very much. I mean, they're up, but um, not dramatically. So they're nowhere near where you would expect them to be. Were we anywhere near the nadir of this uh, threat at paint? So that, you know, as, again, is another indication that we're nowhere. We're just at the barely early innings of this. Um, and, you know, when you think about uh, really simplistic things, like if you overlay the junk bond yield with a speculative grade default rate, um, basically the junk bond yield leads by 12 months. And that presages a really substantial increase in junk or speculative grade uh, defaults over the next several months. And we're already seeing that increase. I think it was Moody's or S&P, you know, they keep revising up their forecasts for the speculative grade default rate. And I think it was Moody's actually recently raised it from three and a half to four and a half percent as their base case. And their a pessimistic scenario is a 13 and a half percent default rate for speculative grade paper, which is higher even than during the global financial crisis. And wow. when I saw that, I was like, yay, finally, someone who can do basic math because corporate, uh, the corporate sector has twice as much debt as they did going into the global financial crisis. Rates have doubled and the quality of the debt is so much lower than it was going into the GFC. I mean, the issue in the GFC was the household sector and mortgages primarily. Um, the corporate sector really wasn't excessively levered and it wasn't low quality borrowers. Today, it's the opposite. You know, the corporate sector, as you know, Adam, uh, more than half of what's categorized as investment grade paper now is just one downgrade above being, being junk. Um, so we've got very low quality paper out there that's exceptionally vulnerable to these higher rates. Um, and we still have a trillion dollars in debt that rolls next year and a trillion dollars the year after that. So I think there's a lot of runway uh, for pain here. Um, and so as much as we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, bankruptcy filings now and the default rate picking up, I don't think we're uh, anywhere near the, the end of the cycle by a long shot. All right. And I just want to show this oh. chart. Are you able to see this chart, Steph? I am. Yes. All right. So this is a chart that gives a sense of the, the debt that is coming up to mature. So you'll see this year we're going to do a little over half a billion. Uh, next year, it's getting close to 800 billion uh, over a trillion in 2025. Right. right. So pretty serious numbers here. And if you could just talk for a second about why the quality of this debt is worse than it was going into uh, the great financial crisis. Like what, what what happened in the lending world where, you know, obviously you would have thought they would have learned to be cautious of the loans they're making from getting burned from the GFC, but clearly not. So, you know, as a result of the decade plus of effectively 0% interest rates, 
people had to go to the farthest corners of risk to get any kind of return. So you had everyone from, you know, venture capital, the private equity, uh, to the pension funds that were giving them the money, um, trying to find anything that would offer a return better than, you know, 2% risk-free 10-year treasury paper. Um, and in the process of trying to find candidates uh, that could provide that yield, they obviously scraped deeper and deeper into the bottom of the barrel. Um, and the result of that is that you have a tremendous number of, of borrowers who never otherwise, you know, in a normal environment would have been able to get credit suddenly um, or not only access to credit, but were lavished with it at very low interest rates. They were the darling to the dance, huh? <laughs> you know, the perfect example of this, in my view, is SVB. Um, SVB was basically the bank for all these zombie companies that were funded by all the private equity uh, VC firms in that area. And these are companies, as we learned, that really didn't have viable business models. They weren't earning money, um, but their uh, modus operandi or the, or the way they were able to survive was just by borrowing. Um, and they, you know, they just larded on debt upon debt upon debt. And it didn't matter because the debt was so cheap um, that, you know, if they ever needed more money, they could just turn around and, you know, get more money from a pension fund or whoever. Um, and this was the problem for Silicon Valley Bank at the end of the day. You know, everyone talks about the run on deposits. Um, but what happened was, their customer base were these zombie companies and they were burning through cash and that's what was draining the deposits and it forced SVB to actually liquidate the assets they were holding against it, the treasury and agency securities that were being you know, pushed underwater by the Federal Reserve rate hike. So there's a perfect uh, combination of awful events. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, I maintain that SVB was a corporate credit story, not a banking crisis story. Um, at its heart, it was an issue related to the solvency of its corporate clientele. Um, and it was the first sort of shot across the bow of this major uh, corporate credit bust that I think we're now in the early innings of. That's yeah, a great, great point. And um, I'm going to combine two of my analogies here. Let's see if I can do it. Um, the Fed, this is why we talk about policy so much on this channel, folks, while it sounds like such a dry topic, it just influences so much of the world that we live in, right? So the Fed um, forced people to go further and further out onto thinner and thinner ice, as Stephanie was saying, because they needed to, to be able to get yield, right? When, when interest rates were so low, people had to go further and further out on the risk curve, right? So that's like going out in thinner and thinner ice. Now, then all of a sudden the Fed's, you know, realized it created a, a big problem. And so it started jacking up interest rates. That's like increasing the force of gravity right out while you're there on the thinnest part of the ice, right? And so corporations and, and sadly soon people are going to be, you know, falling through the ice like this. But it's all because of events that the Fed put in, in motion. And, you know, SVB and many other banks, you know, most regional banks have been victim of this, which is they had to go out on the risk curve as well. 
even in safe risk assets like treasuries, right? But now they're finding that their portfolios are underwater. And so they needed the rescue of the bank term funding program and all that stuff, right? Yep. And of course, what will happen is at some point, as you said, Stephanie, the Fed will pivot and will then try to paint itself as the hero to come rescue right. everybody from the problem <laughs> that it created that was created by the previous problem it created. Right, right. right. And they'll try to find a new constituent to shovel cheap credit to who will take it and run and help, you know, sow the seeds of the next economic upturn. But, you know, uh, what we've learned, I think, over the last 30 years, basically, since Alan Greenspan started this whole cycle, is that the solution to excess borrowing is not cheaper credit and more debt. <laughs> you know, this is just, we're just going around and around and around. Right. And the Fed has this ping ponging from one asset bubble to another, um, hoping that, you know, the last uh, group that blew up, you know, we'll take the bait again, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. After we'll see what and you begin around. to run out of people who can take yes. on that role, right? And and for the world, the 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 party that arrived at the table and and took on all the debt so that everybody could recover was China, right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden now, China, which fast forward, you know, whatever, 13 years or so, uh, is now you know, highly leveraged, uh, where it wasn't really much at all beforehand, now all of a sudden seems to be stumbling under a lot of its internal economic problems, where a lot of the the economic uh, programs it was pursuing that some folks were saying, I'm not sure how sustainable these are, are all of a sudden appearing to maybe not be nearly as sustainable as at least China itself was trying to sell to the world. So point being is China doesn't seem to be in any position to ride to the rescue this time. Um, how worried do you think we should be both about kind of their lack of being able to come in and act as a savior, but also just too like as they begin to stumble, you know, the Chinese real estate market is the largest asset in the world, right? I mean, if that begins to cascade, that is highly likely to set off some contagion, at least in global markets and the global economy, correct? Yeah. And we actually saw this back when the Evergrande thing started to become an issue, I mean, what is that now? Two years ago? Two years really in 2021, been, yeah. Yeah, keeping the lid on this thing for quite a while, um, which speaks to the the power of a centrally controlled economy, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, we started to see some ripple effects here from that uh, when that happened in our credit market, not surprisingly. Um, so I, I think it's a good point. You know, I think China will be an issue um, both independently in terms of its role for global growth and its ability to drive marginal consumption or not, as the case may be. Um, but also there seems to be a real bipartisan movement afoot to try to reduce our dependence on China and sort of uh, create a little more uh, distance between our economy and theirs, um, which if it actually materializes, will make us even, you know, less uh, likely to benefit from any growth that they're able to orchestrate there. Um, and as to whether it can mitigate any harm, you know, it'll be hard because um, the harm will be financial um, and, and the growth would be economic. So, it, you know, it's it's um, that's a tricky one. It, it's hard to see where China is going to be our savior for sure. And it's certainly not going to do that in terms of our deficit financing, probably not in terms of economic growth. Um, although I, you know, I would not underestimate 
the uh, Chinese government's um, termination to prevent their economy from having a real significant downturn because that's, you know, it's life or death for their policymakers. Right. Uh, right. So they, they've got a vested interest in making sure that the people uh, don't get uppity um, and that that may require an enormous amount of money, um, but it's money that won't be coming into our markets will instead be going, you know, staying at home to support their local population and make sure that uh, they aren't rioting in the streets. Right. So we, we we had this kind of white night show up last night in the global side, um, global chessboard economically at the end of the GFC with China. I look around now and I, I just I look at Europe. OK, no. <laughs> I look at Japan. No. OK, no, China. I just don't see anyone. I kind of I kind of lean towards Brent Johnson where it's like, like it or not, like we're 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 in the best shape. And we have all these problems that you and I have been talking about here. So it, it does very much sound like a, an environment in which you shouldn't be pinning your hopes on the cavalry arriving, right? That you should be planning for a, a tougher slog ahead than, than than we've had, you know, for the past five, 10 years, right? Yeah, I mean, our cavalry is the Federal Reserve. Um, and the question is really how effective the cavalry is that? Um, number one, you know, are they going to maintain this higher for longer promise? In which case, you know, the economic downturn will be more material before they finally are forced to relent. Um, but also, what's the cost to us uh, in terms of the debasement of the dollar at a time when the rest of the world seems to be uh, rapidly losing their appetite for transacting in dollars? And of course, you know, that conversation that you were kind enough to let me have on your channel with Jim Rickards. Um, was really eye-opening, I think. And it's, you know, on the one hand, I was disappointed that they didn't announce uh, a joint currency agreement at this meeting. Um, I, as he said, you know, it's just a question of when, mm -hmm. not if. And if you ignore the steps that these countries are taking to uh, diversify away from the dollar, you do so at your own peril. Um, we're talking about, you know, more than 50% of world GDP and 80% now of energy production. So right. uh, this is a material shift. And um, sadly, as he outlined in that conversation, you know, our policymakers seem either blinded by hubris or just, uh, you know, willfully ignorant. Sleep at the um, yeah. yeah. And, and that's not good for the average American, uh, because while we'd like to onshore a lot of production and not rely so much on the rest of the world for uh, cheap imports, uh, right now we still do. Uh, and, you know, they're going to get hit in terms of um, it declining purchasing power parity and, you know, more silent inflation. Uh, which is, of course, the Fed's favorite kind. <laughs> right, right. Well, as as I as I you know think about this, I, I think a lot about Zoltan Posnar's work, where he basically has said, you know, look, these are the these are the resource producers, right? Yeah. These countries, and um, and as their economies continue to mature and and begin to compete more and more as they are with the developed world, um, we in the developed world very well may have a really rude awakening where we in the West and certainly us in the US, we've always kind of operated on the assumption that um, we'll be able to get access to as many yeah. commodities as we want, right? Uh, we're, we're, we're the big guy out there buying them all, like we're, 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 we're first in line. And he's saying, we're gonna find likely that more and more of the supply of the commodities, global commodities are gonna be encumbered, meaning uh, we're gonna say, okay, look, we want, you know, whatever 
2,000 units of those. And I'm going to say, ah, sorry, we already promised half of those to China and another 20% to India. So I can I can give you 40% of what you want. And by the way, because they're you know buying me out, the price is higher than it was last time around, right? So we very well may be finding ourselves in a different world order from a trade perspective than, than in living memory we've been used to. Absolutely. And I mean, I think Zoltan obviously has done a tremendous amount of work on that. And he's so right um, about controlling resources. I mean, the fact is, we all need those basic resources to survive. And again, you have a very cavalier attitude here, as you outlined, uh, about our ability to access that not only our ability to access global resources, but our willingness to just restrict our access to our own resources, mm -hmm. which is just, you know, I that is probably when the push will come to shove and we'll ultimately go back to actually encouraging domestic production, whether it be of energy or, uh, you know, farmlands, et cetera, um, when we realize that we can't rely on the rest of the world to be um, our, our resource producers. Um, but right now we're really... Uh, cutting off our nose to spite our face. And, you know, again, this all feeds back into my macro view in the uh, form of the dynamics of inflation. Um, you know, not to get too wonky about it, but this morning, the data point today was the Dallas Fed Manufacturing Index. And when you went through the details there, their prices paid jumped and their prices received declined. Um, and I think this is a dynamic we're going to start to see a lot more where input costs continue to go up, even as the CPI consumer inflation pressures recede. And mm. it will be a function of the scarcity of resources and the degree to which we have basically outsourced um, our supply to the rest of the world. And we're now dependent on these um, producers elsewhere, many of whom are not so inclined um, to rush to satisfy our various demands. Um, so I think you'll see that, you know, and that will create more pressure on corporate profit margins, as you know, we saw with the Dallas Fed um, on their manufacturing companies where their input costs start to go up faster than their ability to pass them on. And then that again feeds into the employment picture. So basically it all comes back full circle into this same dynamic um, where you're really looking at uh, a corporate sector that's going to be under duress, both in terms of servicing higher cost debt and managing higher input costs at a time when the consumer appears spent up and lent up and is less inclined to absorb those price increases, as we saw with Macy's and Dick's and you know so on and so forth. Um, and you know then we get into that vicious loop that we talked about. All right. Well, look, Stephanie, we're we're at the hour. I have two other topics that I would just love to talk with you. Do you have the ability to go a little bit long here? I want to be respectful. Yeah, absolutely. I'm hey, I'm enjoying it. Your your audience has probably committed suicide. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm pretty if sure folks have been some loving Prozac, your side of the we can go. I'm sorry. I said I'm sure folks have been loving your sides of this conversation. Oh my gosh. Um, all right. Well, thank you for doing that. And before I get to those two, I, I just can't not ask you this question and let you clarify it however you want. Um, we've been talking a bit about inflation. We've mentioned deflation very slightly. Um, I know that you are, I'll, I'll say team deflation. That doesn't mean you're you're wishing it upon us, but I think you know, you've long said that you think that that is going to be the dominant outcome here. Um, do we see it in 2024 in your your eyes? 
Our interview with Stephanie will continue over in part two, which will be released on this channel tomorrow as soon as we're finished editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to hit the like button too while you're down there. Also, if you haven't yet heard, tickets for the Wealthy on Fall Conference have gone on sale at the early bird price discount of nearly 30% off our standard price. And if you're alumni of our previous conferences, you get an additional 15% discount on top of that. So to lock in those low prices while they last, go to Wealthion.com conference. And if the challenges that Stephanie's detailed in this interview have you feeling a little vulnerable about the prospects for your wealth, then consider scheduling a free, no-strings-attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your wealth, keeping in mind the trends, risks, and opportunities that Stephanie's mentioned here. Just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you next over in part two of our interview with Stephanie Pomboy.